Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, with a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A Starfield Sky used to be our evening's entertainment. Now it's Netflix, iPads or even a podcast. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. As an invited speaker at the 2019 LED Symposium, optometrist Stephen Mason said he wanted to show how LED lighting could reduce myopia and macular degeneration and motivate LED manufacturers to resolve this issue. His extensive research in LED lighting led Stephen to file two patents, one in 2017. His groundbreaking design modifies light to protect against long-term exposure to high-energy visible light. The Managing Director of Sustainable Eye Health, a Fellow of the American Academy of Optometry, the past President of the Australian Opto- Optometrical, I knew I'd get that wrong, Association, and Lecturer of the Optometrist Association of Australia, Stephen's background spans the full spectrum. Thanks for joining me today, Stephen. It's a pleasure, Marnie. Thank you. And before we go too far down the track, I um, have to say I was talking to a colleague this morning in the lighting world, and she was a speaker at our conference at Riding the Light Wave of Technology, which I held last year at Siding Spring. And unfortunately, you were unable to attend, but mm. you did do a fantastic presentation, which we'll have online afterwards as well, uh, about the eye. And uh, she said that was the most riveting piece that she'd ever heard. She, she was really stunned by it. So thank oh, you. Thank you for the positive feedback. <laughs> <laughs> and it was for that reason that it, I thought it was really important to invite you along and, and discuss you. the li- lighting issues. Yeah. So let's go right back to the beginning. As an optometrist, what does light mean to you? Mm. Uh, naturally, um, uh, central to what I do uh, is the uh, correction of vision. And uh, I think if you ask most optometrists, uh, their primary concern is ensuring that people have comfortable, clear, corrected vision when it's required. Um, And of course, uh, mixed in with that is prescribing often visual aids that uh, protect our eyes as well against, for example, you know, harsh sunlight and so on. So in our training, much of um, our thinking goes into prescribing spectacles and contact lenses and so on that are designed to correct for comfortable comfortable vision and uh, to prescribe something that is designed for the tasks mm. that we are called upon to do with our eyes. Um, over the last um, probably decade or so, Uh, In my case, uh, I've come to appreciate more and more how light, um, which, you know, on on the one hand, as an Australian optometrist, Mm. uh, we see the harmful effects Mm. of of light on the surface of the eye, particularly, you know, pterygiums and pinguiculae. These are 
These are disorders of the front surface. Uh, to some degree, cataract uh, is caused by uh, long exposure to UV light. Um, so we see the negative effects, and we're certainly trained mm, to, mm. to deal with all of that. But the last uh, decade or so, my mind has turned to the potential beneficial effects of light. Fantastic. And that's where um, I guess my thinking has, has turned in the last few years. Mm -hmm. yes. And was there a particular moment that made you pivot <laughs> and see the benefits of light? Well, mm. there, there mm. was actually. Mm. Um, for, for quite a, the last uh, uh, almost, say, uh, seven, eight, nine years of, of practice, um, my practice in optometry was in a uh, beachside suburb mm. of Sydney, Mona Vale. And we lived in Avalon, which is a, a suburb or, or two north. Where I was born. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, my sons, I have three. My eldest son, Tom, is a particularly keen surfer. And uh, we always wondered why he would surf late in the day, very late in the day, when the sun's going mm. down, you know, when the sharks are swimming, are swimming around. around. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, Tracy, my wife, commented to me one day, you know, have you ever thought about why Tom surfs in the dark? And I said, not really. I just suppose it was convenient. Mm. And she said, no, it's because of the glare. Oh. I, I said, oh, as well. Yes. And as a son of an optometrist, I thought immediately, totally, you know. Is that like being a son of a dentist? Negligent. As a child with yes, the, the most absolutely. holes in their teeth? Yeah. Furthermore, Tom had been complaining. He was doing a master's degree in fine arts at the time, and he was working on his computer mm. late into the night, and, and he was also commenting on his difficulty in getting to sleep. So I joined the dots and, and it occurred to me that um, there were two things that uh, needed addressing here. Mm. And the first thing was protecting his eyes against uh, the glare uh, so he wouldn't be surfing when the sharks were around. <laughs> and secondly, uh, addressing the blue light coming from his computer screen ah. that was inhibiting the melatonin from his pineal gland mm -hmm. that... Um, Otherwise so, would help him sleep. So I did that. He mm, got two pairs of glasses mm -hmm. and they both worked really well. So he was able to Same. get a, a much better night's sleep. Now, uh, this was really, this is uh, almost 10 years ago, and, and this really, really um, uh, triggered in my mind uh, some important thoughts. Mm. And I straight away started to ask my patients who were working on their computers at night, you know, how well do you sleep? Mm. It's not a common question that an optometrist necessarily no. might ask their patients. But I, I certainly thought <clears throat> it was an interesting question to ask and uh, I might discover and learn something. And uh, I was surprised how many patients said to me, look, I have, you know, a terrible time trying to get to sleep. Mm. Um, and yes, I do work on my computer. I'm obliged to. I remember a few patients saying, you know, I, I work um, uh, at, in the evening because I have to. I have to. I have to manage a database. I have to re-index databases. It's the only time you can do the work sometimes. Exactly, when, yeah. when mm. the computer at work is quiet mm. and, and you can fix it all up. So... Um, uh, I had great success, let's just say, mm. with prescribing for these patients. It took a little bit of uh, learning on mm. my part mm. to discover what wavelengths of light are responsible for keeping us awake mm. um, and how to prescribe the correct colour of, con of, of, of spectral lenses. And that's, to, that's my question mm. is... So this was actually we've been reading about this sort of thing in the in the papers and mm. on you know 
on websites, etc. For a few years now, we're getting messages from um, iPhone, you know, mm. to put night mm. nightshade. Mm. Is it? Is that the, the setting? There's a there's a fitting that I, um, Apple have that That's you can right. actually That's night right. shift. That, it's called. That's correct. Yes. But. Um, this you were doing all this before all of this sort of information was coming out. Yes, I, I certainly was learning about it. Uh, I was drilling into it, and um, it didn't take long for me to then start to join a few more dots. Mm. And um, my research took me in the direction of um, how uh, there are, in fact, uh, uh, beneficial effects, for example, of sunlight. Uh, it, it, it boils. Which are? Well, 480 nanometers is a good start. I mean, it um, is what a version. What does that mean? <laughs> we learn it when we're at school. Mm. Um, Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Mm-hmm. It's indigo, mm-hmm. right? And um, at that wavelength of light, um, I'm just uh, digressing here slightly, no, but never, never <laughs> I'm mind. taking you in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> at 480 nanometers, which is, as I said, a version of blue light mm-hmm. in sunlight, naturally in sunlight light, let's call it the good blue light yes, okay. uh, of indigo, mm-hmm. that triggers a response on the retina. We now understand very well, mm. uh, extremely well, uh, brilliant um, biologists, Mm. Um, they're a whole um, genre unto themselves. These are the vision researchers. Okay. And these guys have spent decades looking into how the photochemistry of vision actually works. And, of course, I uh, I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on this, but there's another genre that deals with the sleep sciences. Yes. And these people Mm. have spent decades Mm. researching all this. What I'm trying to convey, I suppose, is that there is a vast reservoir of knowledge out there now. Mm. (laughs) And I started scratching around on the surface and uh, it was immediately apparent that this magic wavelength of 480 nanometers mm. uh, triggered a biological response on the retina. Mm-hmm. And there's a very, very specific cell there called the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglion cell, mm-hmm. and we'll call them IPRGCs. I was going to say, there's got to be an acronym there. An IPRGC. <laughs> and yeah. they've really, we've really, we've hypothesised on their existence for about 20 years, but we've really only known about them intimately for probably 10 or so. Mm, mm. And these guys, are these little cells on our retina, there's not many of them, by the way. Mm. They're few and far between, mm. right? They occupy only... But we, incredibly powerful by the sound. Incredibly of it, yeah. powerful. Mm. And these guys regulate our sleep for a mm. start. Mm-hmm. So that same wavelength is the most potent, 480 nanometers, at inhibiting um, sleepiness. Right? The melatonin secretion? Or it inhibits, yes, it. exactly. It mm. inhibits melatonin. Mm-hmm. Uh, two words we need to not confuse, and that's melatonin. And the actual uh, chemical inside the uh, IPRGC is melanopsin. Oh, okay. yes. So mm. um, IPRGC's melanopsin has its, absorbs light maximally mm-hmm. at 480 nanometers. Mm-hmm. So that's how it triggers these IPRGCs to send a signal to your brain mm-hmm. that ultimately goes through a couple of pathways and that ultimately inhibits melatonin and keeps us awake. Of course, when the light goes down Mm. and it's dark, the cells turn off Mm. and melatonin is then released and we feel sleepy. Now, we discovered that these cells, the Mm. IPRGCs, also synapse, that is, connect with other cells in the retina called amacrine cells, and they are a tiny little reservoir of dopamine. Now, dopamine is a neurotransmitter. 
And when uh, IPRGCs are stimulated, they also cause amacrine cells to release dopamine. Mm -hmm. The dopamine in turn binds with receptors on the white of our eye and stabilises eye growth. Myopia is a condition when the eyes don't know when to stop growing. Okay. And they continue to grow and grow mm. and grow. And as they do so, they no longer accurately focus light on the back. And right. you have to put some lenses in front to fix it up. Mm -hmm. That's myopia. Yes. Just uh, uh, backtracking slightly. Eyes do grow normally. Continue. Like from birth mm -hmm. to the age of nine. To nine. Nine. Mm -hmm. And at the age of nine years, they stop growing. We have a name for that process, and it's called the emetropization process. Mm. And we understand it. Again, the vision scientists have been very busy for a very long time. And we understand the emetropization process quite well. Mm -hmm. And providing our eyes are exposed to around about two to three hours of sunlight per day, naturally, then the eyes know when to stop growing. Right. If you like the sunlight, I like to use the word it helps the eyes calibrate themselves, right? So they recover what we've discovered. Mm -hmm. They recover, for example, normally after long periods of reading if they're getting their correct dose of sunlight. So what if they get too much sunlight? Uh, as far as the red... Or, or, or this blue spectrum of light, is that what you're saying? If... Uh, we don't know. I don't mm. know the answer to that okay. question, to be quite honest mm. with you. I don't think anyone's sort of shone, which is a reasonable question. Mm. Um, I don't think anyone has studied the mammalian eye's response to overdosing okay. on 480 nanometers. But what I can tell you is this. <clears throat> there are other wavelengths of blue um, that are toxic yes. to the retina, the back of the eye, and they are the short wavelength blue. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful paper. It was written by uh, the, the lead author was Emily Arnault, and her and her colleagues published this in 2013. And it was a, a groundbreaking paper. Mm. And what Arnault and others uh, found was that short wavelength blue was highly toxic for the retina. Mm -hmm. And too much of it caused damage to uh, some of the... Uh, uh, photosensitive, uh, light-sensitive elements of the eyes mm -hmm. and particularly over time caused damage to the foundation layer of the retina, the retinal pigmentary epithelium. So Arnold's work was uh, very, very important in, in, in being one of the first papers to show us that it wasn't necessarily the intensity of the light okay. that was the key issue. So what is? Wavelength. Right. It's the wavelength, mm -hmm. and it's that short wavelength blue. It's actually 435 nanometers plus or minus 20 nanometers, so it's 415 to 455 mm -hmm. is the most toxic wavelength of light. And so let's go back to the point that you were saying that you, I'm going to go right back to the beginning here, that your son had this issue and you decided to mm. research and try and help him mm. and that you gave him two sets of glasses. I did. The light from his computer screen, there must have been some blue in there, obviously, at 480 nanometers, highly mm. likely, you know, indigo. It's mm -mm. a pretty common colour, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I then found out which version of yellow, which is the uh -huh. complementary colour to blue, 
which version of yellow, you know, is going to block 480 nanometers? I put it in a pair of specs and fixed him up. Great. Simple. Simple. Not rocket science. No. No. Elementary. Really. Yeah. <laughs> and because I've heard of some um, hospitals, actually, you know, you imagine these hospitals that are brilliantly lit, and we'll, we'll start talking about interior lighting and things mm. in a minute, but mm. these hospitals that are brilliantly lit, and they need to be at night so that they can see the blood and, mm. and mm. you know, what's going on in the human body. Mm which is great for the nurses and the doctors that need to see what's happening, mm. but really bad for the patient who's not getting their circadian rhythm in, mm. a, in the correct cycle, mm. etc. So they're actually talking now about fitting patients with yellow glasses, mm. which actually eradicate this. Certainly, mm. I, I guess uh, I, the first thing that springs to my mind is mm. that um, uh, nothing terribly wrong with a suggestion, but to me that's a bit of a Band-Aid. Yeah. I would suggest that it's uh, more sensible to address the light in the first instance. Mm. And, of course, this is happening. It's happening um, now. It's, it's, it's um, reasonably mainstream for aged care facilities, for mm. example, to be fitted with what we call human-centric lighting, which is lighting that um, changes its intensity and engineers like to refer to the colour temperature, which is, you know, it's white and bright and cool. They call mm. that a cool when it's very, very white. Mm. Or when it's more yellow, they call that warm. So um, uh, engineers would refer to it as, uh, you know, changing the brightness, the luminance, the radiance, mm. and the colour temperature over time. Mm -hmm. This is a good start, but it's not the complete answer. And mm -hmm. the reason it's not the complete answer is that the, the lights that do this are LED lights. And the way LED lights are manufactured these days is they have a peak blue at about 430 nanometers. Oh, there's a correlation there. There yeah. is, that's yeah. right. It has something to do with the health mm. of the retina that mm. Arnold discovered, you see. Um, I hasten to add that others followed Arnold. Um, mm. She wasn't alone. And there was a flurry of activity. <clears throat> and there were some important papers published after her. Um, and I'd, I'd direct our, uh, our listeners to Francine Bahar-Cohen, uh, and I'd, uh, there are others, Shang uh, and so on. And, and what uh, they did was in the laboratory, they um, exposed mammals, which is t uh, typically um, rodents, mm. uh, which have a remarkably, may I say, similar retina to us humans. Um, there are some subtle differences. They don't see the, quite the same colours we do. But nevertheless, the impact on the biology of their retina is the same as ours. Mm -hmm. And um, the vision scientists, uh, biologists, uh, discovered that, you know, uh, light at a radiance that we experience on a daily basis in our offices and schools... So in our art artificially... In our artificially lit environment, if you put that in um, over um, uh, a laboratory mammal, mm. you will see retinal damage. It usually takes 36 hours or more. Consistent at can, it, yes it, no 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 twelve hour shifts okay. so twelve hours on twelve hours off so right? you're saying so that within three days correct yep. that's right mm -hmm. that's right that's right mm -hmm. now uh, you can start to draw your own conclusions mm -hmm. about the effect on the young transparent eye for example of our school children mm -hmm. and those at university and college etc and even those in offices what is the impact on LED lighting with a blue peak at 430 nanometers, look it up, not hard to do. Mm. And you'll see it's called the spectral power distribution. Okay. And you'll see that the spectral power distribution of current LED globes has a blue peak at 400, usually 430, 440 nanometers. Mm -hmm. 
And if you recall my comment earlier, it's it's 4.15 to 4.55 is the toxic range. That's right. mm. As it happens, um, they have a trough at 480 nanometers, so little or none. Mm. At that wavelength that is most beneficial for preventing myopia. Right. Right. This is your patent. Yes, exactly. So what we've done is we've tried our best, and of course it's an evolutionary process. I'm sure there'll be more to follow, but what we've done is address that. It's a relatively simple step to manufacture LED lights so that their blue peak, if you will, is shifted. That's all all one is doing. So Mm -hmm. one is shifting it away from the hazardous range Mm -hmm. to the healthy range. Mm -hmm. Now, some will say, but hang on a moment. Um, You've just shifted the blue peak to 480, Stephen. Mm. And um, uh, that's that's the that's the you know wavelength that keeps us awake. Yes. Yes. I, so I, you need to do it at the right time of the day. Yeah, you are. Mm. So mm. the wonderful thing is this, and and those who've done a little bit of reading on it will know, in human centric lighting, it's it's quite um, normal process to um, have our LED lights connected to a processor, a computer, mm. an algorithm that actually adjusts that mm-hmm. wavelength. Radiance mm-hmm. over time. Fantastic. So, of course, mm-hmm. later in the day, mm-hmm. the 480 is gone, G-O-N-E. Yes. It has mm-hmm. to be. Why mm-hmm. wouldn't it be? Because mm-hmm. we all want, you a, need good, to go into that cycle. We yep. all want mm-hmm. a good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. That's right. Fantastic. There you are. So why isn't everyone picking up this technology and jumping at it? it sounds amazing. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, uh, certainly I'll, I'll answer this as diplomatically as I possibly can. And uh, it goes along these lines. Uh, I have been in uh, lengthy conversations with more than one major Mm. in the world of global LED lighting manufacture. A couple of important things to reflect on here. Um, LED globes, as they are made today, um, as I said, with this unhelpful um, spectral power Mm. distribution, look, no one set out to make a bad light. No, they just right? did what they did. They yeah. did what they did mm. because mm. that was how um, things had been evolved, if mm-hmm. you will, in mm-hmm. the past. But as it happens, uh, it turns out that, uh, there, if you will, you can think of a, an LED module, we call it, as, as a combination of two important components. Mm-hmm. One is a pure blue. It's called the blue pump. And that's a, a blue blue LED light, right? Yeah. Light-emitting diode. <clears throat> light-emitting diode. Mm-hmm. It's uh, electricity going through uh, semiconductors. Yeah. And on top of that is a phosphor coat. As the blue light goes through the phosphor, there is an excitation of the atoms in the phosphor, mm-hmm. and the combination of the blue and the yellow produces what we see as white light. Mm-hmm. Blue plus yellow equals white. Mm-hmm. Now, as it happens... Um, LED lights, as they are made today, it's a very, very efficient um, concoction, combination of the blue light pump and the um, phosphor coat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it means that LED globes, LED modules, um, you know, they dramatically reduce the consumption of energy, for example, over a fluorescent light, Uh, possibly 60, 65, even perhaps 70% less Mm, energy. Which is why everyone's jumping on it. That's right. And And it took off because of that. It was a carbon footprint. That's exactly right. We we want to save our polar bears, Mm. and and so we should, Mm. and absolutely so we should. Mm. Um, However, when you start modifying 
the spectral power distribution from an LED globe, number one, it's not going to be quite as efficient. I'm talking 2 or 3% here. Right. Right? Mm. So if you make an LED module to my specifications, um, and just to be clear here, we're talking without confusing mm. too many people, yeah. uh, we, <laughs> we, we would be talking about a globe, mm. right? So that's quite a big step, an expensive step too for mm. a manufacturer to undertake. Mm. So to produce a globe that does what I would suggest is a good idea, it's an expensive step and, number one, you have to you know gear up your factories. Mm. And number two, um, the globe itself is 2 or 3% not as efficient as, efficient. Mm. as they are now, mm. right? So if you're in the business of selling um, you know, globes to industry or LED lights to industry and uh, the market in general and you want to say we have the most efficient form of lighting, then um, uh, you there are trade-offs, yes. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. There, there would be a, a few percentage points in trade-offs. Now, the next question we have to ask ourselves is this. If we do nothing, by 2050, half of the world's population will be myopic. 96% of graduates from university in South Korea and China, 96% are myopic. 80% of high school graduates in China are myopic. Mm-hmm. 52% of 19 to 29-year-olds in France are myopic. Mm. We need to ask ourselves the question, well, where do we best spend our money? Of those people who are myopic, which is more, uh, will be around half the world's population by 2050, it's a growing problem. Mm-hmm. I think I've made that clear. Absolutely. Um, of those, 10% will have a high visual error. And those 10% suffer the threat of blindness in their old age. Yes. From a mm. myopic version of macular degeneration, a myopic version of glaucoma, cataract and retinal detachment. Mm. All of those pathologies, uh, they are far more frequent in the highly myopic eye. Yes. If you do the arithmetic, you've got about 1.4 billion people in China at the moment and if 90 or 96% of um, university graduates, but let's go back to 80% of high school graduates. Mm. So what we're talking about here is urban Chinese people. We are talking a large number of people in the population now mm. who in their old age are going to have serious eye issues. Eye issues. Mm. I see the tsunami coming, mm. you see. Mm. and there's not a day to waste, you see. So to answer your question, why hasn't it taken off? Well, it will, I'm pleased to say. Uh, Progress is being made. Fantastic. In that direction, yes. Uh, uh, However, there's not a day to lose, and we really do need to um, turn our mind to, you know, helping helping our our younger, Mm. particularly our younger uh, folk. Well, this mm. is what we do, isn't it? We inflict a problem onto the generation below mm. us. Um, just as a related uh, aside, I was reading a, a piece the other day on, um, I don't know if you've heard, but France has recently just set a nationwide um, uh, standard that all their streetlights won't be any um, brighter than 2,700 Kelvin mm. or around national parks or wildlife areas, 2,200. Mm. Mm. And it started a conversation around how Asians in particular really love this bright white blue light 
for their buildings and things. That there's mm. a there's a cultural propensity mm. to use that colour. They'd really like it. Mm. So I'm, I'm wondering. I mean, it's just an inter- you know with your statistics that you've mm. just given there mm. as well. If, mm. Which mm. came first? <laughs> yeah, uh, the cultural. <clears throat> Mm. sway towards Look, that sort of colour? Or? Yeah, it's interesting mm. to say mm. that. I was in China towards the end of last year mm. and uh, we were hosted by um, some lovely, friendly people there and uh, who took us out to dinner. And I couldn't help but notice that in the restaurant mm. um, the lighting was just as you described. I didn't quite understand why. I happened to raise it with um, one of the hosts and I said, uh, gee whiz, you know, the, the light's pretty white and bright in here. He said, yes, that's how we like it. Yes. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Look, uh, I wish to make this point. Engineers uh, are very fond of talking about the, the correlated colour temperature, which you just quoted. Yes. Um, 2,700 Kelvin and so on. And we know that as that number gets uh, higher, the, the, the lighting gets uh, whiter. Uh, so... What I part of my uh, role is to try and convey to engineers that we can talk about correlated colour temperature, but it's a lot more helpful if we talk about the wavelengths mm, mm. rather than CCT. Mm. We should be putting correlated colour temperature to one side. It's convenient because you can quote a number. Yes. Right? However, we can still, listen carefully, we can still enjoy... Excellent outdoor illumination with our current technology, mm. and we can remove that short wavelength blue light, mm-hmm. which contributes to light pollution, which contributes to um, uh, harmful uh, scattered light. It's scattered the most. Mm. The short wavelength blue, rally mm. scattering, and mm. so on, Tyndall scattering through the eye. Um, we can we can minimise light pollution. And we can improve visual performance with lighting that has a better mm. improved spectral power distribution, which has the short wavelength blue minimised, mm. but at the same time is warmer. Yes. Yeah. If you think about it, actually, by, by removing the short wavelength blue straight away, you tend to make a light more yellow, Right. So uh, we're going in the in the correct direction here, mm. but that's part of my role over the last few years. What uh, I've had the um, privilege of talking to audiences in North America and in Europe, largely engineers and those um, distributors and manufacturers of LED lighting, and what a friendly and warm reception I've received. The rest of the world is really catching on to this and there Australia's you are. Australia's slow at this, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. and yeah. France mm. you mentioned, mm. Mm. as it happens, some of the most fabulous research, mm. Emily Arnold, for example, and her team uh, are all, all based in, in France at the University of Pierre and Madame Curie. So amazing research. Some mm. of the best research in the impact of short wavelength blue on the retina, that's precisely where this research comes from. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, I was going to pick up on Australian engineers and, and you said that your product, mm. your patent might come to the fore. What, mm. what, where do you see that coming? How, how is that going to oh. end lightness? Oh, fantastic question. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, again, I have to be a little bit 
uh, diplomatic here and and be mindful of um, where we're up to with mm. this. But uh, it's our hope, put it that way, that uh, lights such as ours would become commonplace, for example, in our schools and universities and our offices. Mm. Certainly schools, I think, is a wonderful place to start. Mm. You have very younger, you have the younger transparent eyes here. We know that more blue gets through that eye mm. than through the older eye. When I say older, I really mean over the age of 40, to be honest. It's not that old. <laughs> which is not that old. But over the age of 40 or so, the crystalline lens in our eye starts to become a little bit more yellow. Mm. Therefore, it's absorbing some of the, the blue. blue. Mm. Are you with me? There is a paradox here, I hasten to add, and the alert listener will say, well, hang on, I've read Arnold's paper, and what Arnold says is short wavelength blue is really, really bad for some very old eyes mm. that contain a, prote a protein called A2E. A2E is a metabolic byproduct that tends to accumulate in the older retina. And ultimately, we see it at the back of the eye. It's a precursor to macular degeneration. And we call it drusen, D-A-U-S-E-N, right? Mm -hmm. So when we look in an older eye, we see these little yellow spots on the retina. We call them drusen. We now know they contain this protein, A2E. And guess what? A2E really absorbs high-energy blue light, high-energy short-wavelength blue. Mm -hmm. And that's what our Nolts paper um, particularly dealt with, and she showed that these retinae loaded with A2E deteriorated very, very rapidly okay. with short wavelength blue eye. To my point, that it's the it's the younger and the and paradoxically also the yeah. very old. Mm. You know, mm. is there a window in between where it doesn't matter? No, I say to you all, eye health always matters. I, yeah. Yes, mm. eye health always matters. Mm. Mm. So that actually brings me. To, the po to a question that I have um, often posed to me when I do public talks about mm. why is it, and it's always the older people in the audience, why are those white, white lights on headlights, mm. why are they affecting their eyes so much? And you basically just answered it because... Mm. Yeah, the, I the, partly the answer that. Mm -hmm. there, is, there is another important reason. Mm. And uh, there is one particular engineer in North America who deserves more recognition, Nisa, Nisa Khan. And she's done some incredibly important work in this space. And uh, what she has pointed out to us is how directional LED lights really are. In mm -hmm. other words, the light from an LED um, surface, and I use that word advisedly, it's uh, a flat surface. And uh, because if you think about it in nature, very, in fact, no light sources are typically flat. Mm. If you think of the sun and you think of stars, uh, you think even of a tungsten globe with mm. its filaments and so on, that we all thought, you know, and, and uh, reasonably thought as, as a nice light to have, right? Not mm. energy efficient, but nice to have and work by and so on. Um, these sources don't have a flat surface that emit light. LEDs do. Mm. And if um, uh, Nisa Khan has done the mathematics on this, may I say exquisite mathematics <laughs> on this, and I hope she gets the recognition she deserves, uh, this source of light, LED surface, emits a highly directional version of light. Mm. And in our car headlights... And, and, and elsewhere where we're confronted by these lights straight into our eyes, uh, terribly glary. Mm. 
Mm. Now, I wish to use, again, that that term glare is an important one because there's a couple of components here. The glare mm. is from the directional um, nature of LED lighting. Okay. Flare, I like to call it, on the other hand, <clears throat> is, if you will, the glow around okay. it. And yeah. it's the flare that's um, maximised by short wavelength blue. And it's the glare that is produced by the flat surface. Okay. okay? Fantastic yeah. explanation. There you are. Great. Mm. Thank you. Well, um, I think that answers most of my questions and probably most of our audience has been some fantastic information. Mm. But just to finish up, I know that you have an association with astronomy, a childhood association, mm. and this is called Dark Sky Conversations. <laughs> so I'd love to know the time that you treasure most about being under a night sky oh i can answer that Mm. very easily Mm. i do i can answer that extremely easily yes well you probably i think you're alluding to the fact that um, and we spoke about this once before my father uh, built he was an amateur astronomer astronomer and he he hand ground the um reflecting mirror uh uh, for his telescope Mm. it was it was it was a tube about uh 14 inches in diameter and it stood about six foot tall I suppose and in the bottom of it was this mirror that he ground by hand I remember the process very well I was probably, probably took only, ages oh it took months and months <laughs> and 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 I was only uh, probably I don't know uh, 10 or 11 years of age or something uh, I do recall vividly it was July it was winter um, and uh, I was freezing cold and we we're in the backyard uh, using the telescope and Neil Armstrong had just landed on the moon and we had our neighbours and friends around, you know. Mm. Uh, Mum was busy serving hot cups of tea to everybody <laughs> to try and stay warm. And I, a couple of things uh, do stick in my mind. The first thing is after looking through the telescope at the moon for a while, uh, when I came away, I couldn't see much out of... It was a monocular, by the way. Uh-huh. Um, mm. I couldn't see much out of my eye that I'd had <laughs> to the telescope eyepiece, you know. I can even remember it was a Barlow lens. So uh. There you are. It was top of the range. Mm. Uh, and the other thing um, I do remember was everyone thought it quite a joke we couldn't see Neil Armstrong, you know. <laughs> the, the, the telescope wasn't quite powerful enough. Uh. That's my vivid memory mm. of the night That's sky. And one. this mm. is in a little country town mm. up on the north coast. So in 1966, 67, wasn't it? I think it was 1967. Well, we're coming yes. to the 50th anniversary this uh, year. 69, was it? There you are. Yeah. Uh, well, there you are. Mm. Um, I do remember it was winter, and um, uh, I, I have a vivid memory of that, and yeah. uh, it stays with me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. fantastic. Mm. Well, on that very memorable note, <laughs> we'll uh, sign off. But thank you very much. It's Thanks, been fantastic Marty. talking to you. An absolute pr- pleasure. Thank, thank you me. for the invitation. Yeah, great. So on that note, if you've got any questions for us, you can uh, send them along to us at podcast at darkskytraveller.com.au or uh, you could tweet us or Instagram us at darkskyoz. Uh, if you'd like to take a look at uh, one of Stephen's presentations, you could go to lightsafe.com.au. But uh, when you are online and listening, please take the moment to review us and subscribe. Thank you. That's it for this week. Lights out.